So we're going to jump into our study today. We're going to be in the book of Galatians chapter 3. And we're going to be talking about simple faith today. He is writing, Paul is, to set his readers straight by reminding them that the only way to be saved, the only way to be right with God is placing your faith in what Jesus has done for you. You're not saved by anything that you can do. You're not saved by your works. You're not saved by keeping the Old Testament law of Moses. You are saved by grace. And grace is what Galatians is all about. In the first two chapters, Paul shared his testimony, how God's grace had radically altered his own life. And now in chapters 3 and 4, Paul is going to move into his teaching about grace, his doctrine of grace, how we should understand this concept of grace. And so we're going to jump right in at verse 1 with Paul delivering the classic first three words, Oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. Paul's using strong but loving language here to make the point that the behavior of the Galatians was unexplainable, irrational, inexplicable, as though they were under some sort of hypnosis that was causing them to act like fools. Paul was passionate about the cross, and the idea of this verse is that through his preaching to the Galatians, Paul had painted a vivid portrait of what it was like when Jesus was crucified. They understood what had happened to Jesus on the cross. When Paul spoke to them, they could almost hear the nails being driven into the Lord's hands and feet. Underneath these words, Paul is saying to the Galatians, you know that Jesus died for your sins. You know that he was crucified for you. But now you've started behaving as though a man can be made right with God by keeping the law, which makes the death of Jesus pointless. You know so much better what's gotten into you. That's what Paul is saying. Verse 2, this only I want to learn from you. He says, let me ask you this, just one thing. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Has God's Spirit come into your life? If so, did you receive Him by keeping the law? Did He show up when you reached a certain level of good behavior? Or did you receive the Spirit by believing in faith the gospel message that was preached to you? His point is clear that anyone who had received the Spirit of God had received it by faith. And they knew it. None of them had the testimony, you know, when I got into that top, top percentage, then God gave me his spirit. None of them could say that. That's why in the next verse, Paul says, are you so foolish? Underline the whole rest of verse three, it's classic. Having begun in the spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? Paul's point is is brilliant. He said, "You, you couldn't save yourself by keeping the law. You could only be saved by putting your faith in what Jesus did for you. Do you really think that God saved you, which you couldn't do yourselves, so that you could go back to trying to keep the law again? If the only way to keep your salvation is by keeping the law, then you're doomed because you already know that you can't do it. 
That's the entire reason Jesus had to save you. You're saved by faith, is Paul's point, but you're also sustained by faith. Having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? As Paul would later write to the Christians in Ephesus, it's on your outlines, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. And we can read this and have a chuckle. <laughs> Foolish Galatians, classic. But we do the same thing ourselves to varying degrees. You know, we get saved, and because we're grateful for God for saving us, we ask the question, well, now how do I live for Jesus? What's his plan for my life? What's next? What do I need to do? Because there's, there's something in our flesh, there's something in our nature that's always drawn back to this question of what do, what do I need to do? Would you write this down and we'll talk about it. The gospel message is that it's not about what you can do. It's about what God has done. It's not about what you can do. It's about what God has done. And as soon as we start creating a checklist of things we need to do, all of a sudden we're adding to what God has done. We're declaring that what Jesus did on the cross is, is not enough. It needs to be supplemented. And we're guilty of being just like the Galatians. Having begun in the spirit, are you now being made perfect in the flesh? But this leaves us in a bit of a predicament because we know that there is something that comes after our salvation. We know that God didn't save us so that we could just sit around twiddling our thumbs, waiting for the rapture or waiting to die so that we can go to be with him eternally. So what do we do? How do we approach living as a believer? Once we're saved, we move into this process called sanctification. We receive a new spirit, the spirit of God, when we place our faith in Jesus. But the ultimate goal is not that only our spirit would become like Jesus. The ultimate goal is that all of us would become like Jesus. Whether we die here on the earth or are taken in the rapture, when we arrive in God's presence, our sanctification will be complete. The Word says that when we see Him, when we see Jesus, we will be like Him. That's our destiny. That's where we're headed. But while it's not possible for our bodies to be renewed in our earthly lifetime, if you haven't figured that out yet, our character can continue to grow throughout our lifetime to become more and more like Jesus. And that's what he's doing through this process of sanctification. God is working on our character to make us more and more like Jesus. And what Paul is saying is pretty radical. He's saying that our personal growth, our sanctification, doesn't happen by our own efforts either. It happens the same way that our salvation happens. How's that? By faith. It happens by faith. Faith is everything in the Christian life. It's why in Hebrews 11, we're told that without faith, it's impossible to please God. And what Paul is urging these believers to do is not buy into the ridiculous idea that you needed God to save you, but now that he saved you, you can cover your own sanctification. You can just urge and strive yourself to become a better person, to become more like Jesus. You can't just try really hard and become better by just trying really hard. Remember, if that worked, you wouldn't have needed Jesus in the first place. 
That's the point that Paul is making. And this is why you and I can be exactly like the Galatians because we say, oh God, save me. I get it that I needed that, but now that I'm a Christian, now, now I've got to really buckle down and, and there's this whole bunch of stuff I've got to do. There's this whole bunch of stuff I've got to not do. And if I can just ride some of these things for 30 days, then they'll become a new habit and I, I can change who I am. And we go right back into that old kind of thinking. To which Jesus himself would, would say, you don't get it. If you change the external behavior for a while, you've still got the problem that you haven't changed your character. Sanctification takes place from the inside out. And we cannot change who and what we are on the inside. That's a work of God. It's a work of God we either embrace or surrender to or we resist. But we certainly cannot generate it on our own. None of us can decide, you know what? I'm going to be kind. I'm just going to become a kind person. I'm just going to do that. You might be able to fake it for a while, but you can't just become a kind person because it's what's inside of you that is driving what's coming out of you. That's why Paul says it it doesn't make any sense. It's God who saves. It's God who sanctifies. And it's God who sustains you. So would you write this down? We are saved the first time. We are sustained, which means we are kept saved. And we are sanctified all by faith. We are saved, sustained, and sanctified by faith. Jeff, what do you mean faith in the process of sanctification? What do you mean? Well, do you realize that God is always working on your sanctification? Whether you realize it or not, whether you like it or not. He's working on your sanctification. You know what Romans 8.28 says. It's a promise. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. That verse includes sanctification because the greatest good for us is becoming more like Jesus. And God is always always doing that work in our lives. And our job is not to try and work on ourselves. Our job is to embrace and surrender to the work that God is already doing in each of us. Here's what this means. Here's what this means. Let's take it from the head and try and move it down to the heart here. It means that we don't need to be praying, Father, please change me this way. Father, please grow me in this area. What does the word say? The word says your heavenly father knows what you need. He knows what you need. He knows that while you might be praying for greater faith, what you really need is greater forgiveness. He knows. You see, a good teacher doesn't let the students write the curriculum. And God is the best teacher. Now, the good news is you might say, well, well Jeff, are we, are we not supposed to ask God for things? Absolutely ask him for things. But here's what I mean. If he knows that you really need to grow in forgiveness, he's not going to let you set the agenda. He's going to keep working on forgiveness in your life. You can pray, but one of the wonderful things about God, one of the wonderful things about God is that when our prayers are completely misguided, Jesus is right there by the Father saying, What he really means, Father, is, and telling the Father what we really, really should be praying. How many of you are glad that God hasn't answered every prayer you've ever prayed? Right? Amen? A good teacher doesn't let the students write the curriculum. 
the best way, I, b- I believe, to pray when it comes to sanctification is, Father, please give me the humility to recognize and welcome your work in my life and follow the leading of the Spirit. If you want to grow to become like Jesus, that's, that's the way to pray is, Father, what do you want to do in me? What are you calling me to do? Give me ears to hear, eyes to see, and, and a heart to understand what it is that you're doing so that I can get on board with what you're doing. I don't want to set the agenda, Lord. I want to be on board with what you want to do in my life. Why doesn't God just give us a list of qualities that we need to work on and just leave us to it? Here it is. Fruit of the Spirit. Work on this. Come back and see me when you've completed it. Why doesn't he just do that? Why doesn't our sanctification work that way? Well, well, firstly, as we said, we know that we can't will ourselves to be good. We can't do it. We can't change our internal character by just trying. Secondly, most importantly, it's because God is all about a relationship with us. He's all about a relationship with us. And our sanctification is another opportunity for us to draw closer to God in relationship. Because in order for us to welcome his work in our lives, we're going to have to ask questions like, what do you want me to pray about today, Lord? Who do you want me to pray for? Who do you want me to talk to today, Lord? Is there anyone you want me to to just encourage? Is there any conversation you want me to have, Lord? We're going to have to listen for his voice. We're, We're going to need to ask for help when we understand what he wants us to do. We're going to need to share our struggles and burdens with him in prayer. And all those things are going to draw us closer and closer to him. That's why God doesn't just leave us with a list and say, work on this stuff. Try to get better at it. It's because he actually wants to be involved in our lives in making us more like Jesus. So he's going to call us. He's going to ask us to grow along with his spirit in areas where it it might be difficult. But the whole point is so that we'll have to do it with him. I want you to forgive this person. God, I can't. You, You can if we do this together. That's the idea. That's the idea. We're saved by faith, but we're also sanctified by faith. God is always at work in our lives. He's growing us. He's shaping us to make us more like Jesus. And as we said, we're either at any given moment, we're either welcoming his work in our lives or we are resisting his work in our lives. This is why so many believers hit a wall in their spiritual growth that they just never seem to break through. What the scriptures are telling us is that you cannot continue to progress and grow in your sanctification. You cannot continue to become more and more like Jesus without faith. Without faith. You can't do it. And the way God grows our faith is by putting us in a situation that we can only get through if we trust him. And then giving us the choice. Will you trust me or not? That's how he grows our faith. When we choose to trust God, we get to see him move. We get to see him inevitably come through and prove himself faithful again. We're reminded that his promises are true. And as a result, our faith grows. We've got a story. We've got a testimony. And our sanctification takes another step forward. But what happens to many believers, tragically, is that they choose not to trust God in that situation. There there comes a point in 
I would say almost the majority of believers' lives, there comes a point where they say one way or another, God, I'm not trusting you past this point. Not with this, not on this issue. And when we do that, our our spiritual development, our sanctification, our growth, it comes to a grinding halt in our lives. It's not that God is no longer working on our sanctification. He is. It, it's just that we're refusing to participate. He's saying we're, we're going this way, and we're saying, not me. And that's where things stay. God is still working. He's saying, come on, come on. But we say, nope, not going to do it. And yes, I'm telling you that, that some believers will go through most of their lives not growing at all in their faith at all. I've met, I've met so many of them. I've met people who were 30 and then met them later when they were 50 and haven't grown at all in their faith. Haven't grown at all. And it's, it's tragic when you encounter it. We're going to talk some more about this, but write this down. We're saved by saying yes to what God has done. We're sanctified by saying yes when God calls us to trust him. That's how we're sanctified, is simply by saying yes when God calls us to trust him. There are a million ways that believers say no to the Lord. A million different ways. I'll give you just a few. For many believers, it's exciting they get to know the Lord and they're like, oh yes, Lord, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust you with this. I'm going to trust you with this. And, and they're just growing explosively in their walk with the Lord, learning from the word. And then they find out about tithing. And it's like... And everything suddenly grinds to a halt. And that becomes the line for many believers where they're like, no further. Not, not doing that. Nope. Not going to do it. And, and that's where they stay for the rest of their lives. And they never move past that issue of God and money. Some people refuse to end a relationship. When we know that we should end it, we know we shouldn't be in it, But it's because there's this fear there that God won't actually provide a right relationship. He won't provide a godly alternative. We're scared of being alone. And we say, nope. I'll I'll trust you with other stuff. I'll even trust you with money. But not, not that. Not that, Lord. Sometimes we refuse to forgive someone because we think we're going to be empowering their behavior. And it's just going to get worse. And they have to know. And they have to suffer. And God says, that's that's not how I work. That's not how I work. We're like, well, I'm not going to do it. Stay there. That's where things stay. Maybe we refuse to confront someone because we're terrified of what might happen to the relationship if we confront them. God says, I I want you to bring this up. So sometimes we don't want to confront someone because we're terrified of what might happen to the relationship. Sometimes there's a habit or a practice, a hobby or an activity and God says, listen, that's not healthy for you. That's not good for you. You need to give that up. And we think, well, well, what's, uh, what am I going to find to substitute that in my life? I I don't know, God. God says, I'm enough. And we say, nah, not that. Not going to do that. Whatever it is, 
Our fear wins out one way or another and we say, I can't trust you with that God. And when that happens, without realizing it, we draw a line in the sand and decide that our spiritual growth is gonna go no further. And as the years pass, you see this all the time among believers. As the years pass, this tragedy emerges of believers who just say, you know, my faith just, just seems so stale, so blasé, so unexciting. You know, I used, to, I used to be like on fire for God. And you know what it was? It, it wasn't that you were in the perfect environment or anything like that. Th- those moments when you look back and you were just passionately in love with God. Here's what I can guarantee you. I guarantee you in those moments you would have done anything the Lord asked you to do. If God had said, time time to go to China, you would have been like, all right, let's do it. There's this connection between being willing to say yes to God and having a vibrant spiritual life. There is no one who is actively saying no to God who has a vibrant spiritual life. No one. I guarantee you that. There is a direct connection. Now please understand, we're still saved. God's love for us hasn't changed one bit. But when we draw that line in the sand and we begin to say no to God, we're missing out on the abundant life that God wants to give us. We're missing out on the excitement of having a faith that is alive. We're missing out on seeing God do greater and greater things in our life and the life of our family. And it's an absolute tragedy. It's an absolute tragedy. But an all too familiar story. Growing in faith is not about your efforts or your works. It's about simply continuing to say yes to the Lord. He will set the agenda. He will create opportunities for you to grow in the areas that you need to grow. His timing will be perfect. You'll have to rely on him to do it. But sanctification is all about saying yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Over and over again. So if you're in the place of feeling like you're spiritual life has become stagnant. Let me, let me just ask you, what, what was the last thing the Lord asked you to do? What was the last step of faith that God asked you to take? And did you do it? Did you do it? If you said no to the Lord, it would be wise to just revisit that and ask him if he's still waiting for you to say yes. And if he is, then do it. Do it, and I promise you'll begin to find the vibrancy of your spiritual life returning. There's one last thing I want us to see in verse 3. Notice that Paul makes it clear that you're either living by the Spirit or the flesh, one or the other. Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect in the flesh? When we try to live the Christian life, when we try to grow spiritually by our own efforts and our own strength, this is what Paul is saying. He says, when you do that, you're in the flesh. Therefore, you are not in the Spirit. So not only is works-based, law-based living hopeless, but please get this, trying to live the Christian life in your own strength will choke the Spirit in your life. It will quench the Spirit. The harder you try, the more you will choke the Spirit because trying harder is just another way of saying, I'm going to exercise even more control over my life. I'm going to strive even more. I'm going to increase my own efforts. 
Would you write this down? The power to live the Christian life is not found in the mirror. It's found in surrender to Jesus. The power to live the Christian life is not found in the mirror. It's found in surrender to Jesus. It's in saying, Jesus, you lead and I'll follow. You set the agenda. You bring things to my attention. You prompt me. You lead me day by day, moment to moment, and help me to listen, Lord. Help me to listen. Then verse 4, Paul goes on and says, Have you suffered so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? When you look at the original Greek in the context, it's more like Paul's just saying, Did you learn nothing from all these experiences? Did you learn nothing? Verse 5, Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? If we were to rephrase that verse in order to make the meaning clearer, it would sound something like this. Does God give his spirit and work miracles among you because you keep the law or because you respond to him in simple faith? And the implication reveals this wonderful truth. Would you write this down? God moves among those who come to him with simple faith in his goodness. Where does God move? He moves among those who come to him with simple faith in his goodness. Now as a side note, Paul is also implying that the, the quote-unquote ministry of the Judaizers wasn't resulting in anyone receiving the Holy Spirit or being miraculously healed. Because when God looks across the earth, God does not say, now where are the top people on the chart of law keeping? Where's the 1% hanging out? Where are those elite people? God does not say, angels, find me the people who have their theology really dialed in. I mean really on point. God doesn't look for who has the most verses memorized. He doesn't look for the church that has their methodology really polished or where people aren't wrestling with sin anymore. Some of those things are good things, don't get me wrong, but they're not what God looks for when he's deciding where he's going to move and where he's going to work in the lives of people. The Lord moves where there's simple faith in his love and in his goodness. Jesus said, the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. The one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. And what I love is that there's no asterisk on that promise from Jesus. There's no terms and conditions. Jesus makes it real simple. Come to me. You want to touch from me. You want to fellowship with me. You want to receive my peace. Come to me. I won't turn you away ever. Paul says the Spirit moves where people simply have faith in the goodness of God. And yet even today, have you noticed this, that when there's some sort of mighty move of God... I've noticed that as people, we just tend to ascribe credit to our own works in some way. And it can be subtle, but, but we still do it. I've seen this for a couple of decades now. Tell me, pastor, someone will say to the pastor of a church, why is your ministry so powerful? How did the revival start? What made your church start growing all of a sudden? Well, you know, we fasted for 95 days straight. No water. Or, you know, we just started praying for two hours every day. 
We got our small groups ministry just really dialed in and, and a couple of key hires on our staff. We discovered this ancient prayer from the Jewish Talmud and uh, just started praying it in faith over the campus. The truth is that most of us would almost be disappointed if they replied, you know, it's just by faith. We just do our best to believe in the goodness of God. We believe that God wants to bless people. God wants to work in the lives of people and that's it. And God's just good and he shows up. But that would actually be the truth because wherever God is moving, whether believers realize it or not, it's because people are coming to him in simple faith, believing in his goodness and his grace. You might think it's something else, but it's not. It's that. And if you want the ultimate example of this, it would be some of the, the wacky faith guys who are on TV and who have been for several decades. I don't know if you guys have all seen the absolutely mental interview with Kenneth Copeland that happened on Inside Edition like a few weeks ago. Have you guys seen this where someone came up to him, he was getting in his car and asked him why he has to have a luxury private jet because he had been on his show talking about how he couldn't fly commercial because that was like, and I've seen the clip, he said that was like being stuck in a tube with a bunch of demons is, is, is what he said. And so, so he got asked about this and it's, it's just an absolute train wreck that has spawned like a million memes and if you don't have it, the internet has it, okay? And so... These are the kinds of guys who claim that they cannot preach the gospel effectively without a luxury private jet. Well, Jesus didn't have one, and they'd probably say yes, because he's Jesus. But us mere people, we, we got to have a luxury jet because we're not on Jesus' level. They're the kind of guys that, that just make you cringe when you hear your non-believing friends talking about them, and your heart just drops because you're like, oh no, you know who that is? Oh man. And, and I've said before, I don't know what it is about Christianity, but it's, if, if the church is a family, how come we always manage to get the crazy relatives on TV? Like, how does that happen? It's unbelievable. Many of them are corrupt, and, and many, to be frank, are, are charlatans. But yet, yet, there are seemingly endless stories of real miracles happening in people's lives through their ministries. Medical miracles, financial miracles, relational miracles. And we look at that and we think, but how is that possible? Will, will God just like approve anybody's ministry? Does, is the angel in charge of standards like really lazy? What is going on? Why would God bless that? Well, here's why. It's because faith is the currency of the kingdom of God. And wherever there is simple faith in the goodness of God, God will do great things. And while most of those guys on TV are theological train wrecks, they still stir up people's faith in the goodness of God. They still do that. And God moves through the faith of those people. It's not that God is endorsing those ministries. I could share verses that would clearly prove that God is not pleased with those ministries, but what God does endorse, no matter how it comes about, is the simple faith of people who are willing to take him at his word and believe in the goodness of his character. Anywhere that God finds someone who will simply believe his promises and will actually believe that he is a good heavenly father who loves his children, anywhere God finds that, 
God's going to move. Doesn't matter how you arrive at that destination. Doesn't matter how wacky the car ride was. If you get to that place, God will move. So would you write this down? Don't be confident in your own faith. Be confident in the faithfulness of God. Don't be confident because you think you can stir up faith. Because you won't always be able to. But you can always be confident in the faithfulness of God. Always. Now changing gears, if there's one guy the Judaizers love to name drop, it was Abraham. It was Abraham. Abraham was the one they considered to be the father of the Jews, the ultimate Jew. And one of their favorite boasts was that the Jews were special because only they were children of Abraham. So Paul says, well, let's talk about your boy. Let's talk about Abraham. Verse 6, he says, just as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. He's quoting Genesis 15, 6, and Paul says, even the Old Testament scriptures tell us that Abraham, the Jew of Jews, was declared righteous by God not because he perfectly obeyed God, but because he believed God, because he believed in the promises of God and had faith that God would do what he said he would do. Abraham wasn't saved by the law. The law didn't come around till more than 500 years after Abraham. But Abraham wasn't saved in any way by works. He was saved simply by believing in the promises of God, including God's promise that he would save Abraham eternally. So make a note of this. Paul points out that even Abraham, and by the way, all the other Old Testament saints, even Abraham was saved by faith. And, and while it's, it's semantics, it's the concept I want to talk about more, there is a difference between believing in God and believing God. The Bible says that even the demons believe in God. They know he exists, but they're not saved. Similarly, there are people who believe that Jesus lived and died. There's even people who believe that Jesus rose again, but they're not saved because they haven't placed their faith in what Jesus said, that he died and rose again in their place as the only way for them to be saved from their sins so that they could be with him eternally. You see, believing in God doesn't save you. Believing God saves you. It's not about giving intellectual assent to God's existence that saves you. It's trusting him to be your savior that saves you, as Abraham did. He goes on in verse 7 and he says, Therefore, know that only those who are of faith, would you underline the word faith, are sons of Abraham. Only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. Abraham's legacy isn't the law. Abraham's legacy isn't works, it's faith. Therefore, the real sons of Abraham aren't those who share his physical ethnicity. It's not Jews. It's those who share his spiritual ethnicity. And Abraham's spiritual ethnicity is faith. If you're a man or a woman who has placed your faith in God, then you are linked to Abraham. You're a son of Abraham. You're a daughter of Abraham, the father of faith. And if you'll recall Abraham's life story back from when we studied through the book of Genesis, you'll remember that he, he was often a disaster. He made some terrible and cowardly decisions 
But he also said yes to God a whole bunch of times and on some really big stuff. And because of that, because of that simple faith, that simple willingness to trust God, he goes down in history as a model of what it means to live by faith. And I hope that encourages you. It encourages me. Because I mess up all the time. All the time. But I am willing to say yes to God. I'm willing to say yes to God. And I know you are too. Verse 8, and the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, in you all the nations shall be blessed. You see, every Jew, including the Judaizers, would be familiar with God's promise to Abraham that through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. So Paul points out that that promise could only be true if God had a plan all the way back with Abraham to save the Gentiles in the future as well as the Jews. That's the only way that every nation could be blessed through Abraham. Just as Abraham was saved by faith, so too God's plan all along was that the Gentiles would also be saved by faith. How? Through Jesus. It would be through the family line of Abraham that Jesus would eventually be born. The one who would bless all the nations in the truest possible sense and fulfill that promise that God made to Abraham. Verse 9, so then, underline the rest of this, those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. He says, therefore, everyone who's placed their faith in Jesus is experiencing the same blessing of salvation that Abraham did. Now, just a few things I want to highlight before we move into a time of prayer, worship, and communion. If you're reading through Galatians, the question might strike you still. How did the Galatians get so mixed up in their theology? How, how did that happen? I mean, I know Paul wasn't dropping the ball in his preaching. We can pretty safely assume that. So how does this happen? The truth is, seen the exact same thing happen many, many times. The main reason it happens is relatively simple, but it keeps happening over and over again. The Judaizers were pointing people to rabbinical texts, commentaries about the biblical text written by Jewish rabbis. So instead of searching the scriptures for themselves for the truth, they began to get all these Galatian believers to search through somebody else's interpretation of the scriptures. We say this often around here, but I can't say it enough. Don't believe anything that you hear me say just because you hear me saying it. Search the scriptures for yourself. Check it out in the word for yourself. You've heard me talk about this again before. In the book of Acts, Dr. Luke is writing about a trip he took with Paul and Silas to the area of Berea, and he writes this about the Jews in Berea. He says, it's on your outlines, these, the people in Berea, were far more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. The men and women in Berea, Luke is saying, were noble. They were noble because they were eager to receive the word of God. Paul and Silas show up, start teaching. They're eager to hear. They've got open hearts. They've got open ears. But then they went on their own afterwards and they searched the scripture 
every day after listening to that teaching to check out for themselves whether or not what they had been taught was true. And Luke says that makes them noble. They were the most noble people that we found anywhere, essentially, in our travels is what he's saying. And that's the model for us to follow. If we don't do that, we're ripe for ending up like the Galatians, easily swayed by a teaching that sounds good or feels good. Any believer can fall into foolishness if they believe what they hear or what they read without checking it against the scriptures themselves. It can happen to any of us. And I'm going to be very direct here because I know for sure that I'm saying this from a place of genuine love for the church, uppercase C, the church of Jesus. But I am, I am dismayed by the number of believers who still live their lives and form their beliefs based on ideas like trusting their gut or following their heart. The prophet Jeremiah astutely observed, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Desperately wicked. If you're a believer and you still buy into the idea of trusting your heart, following your heart, and being led by your emotions, it is time to grow up into the truth. It's time to graduate from that. When Paul wrote to the Ephesians, he told them, we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. Paul is saying we're, we're not supposed to be children of the faith forever who just get thrown around every time there's some new teaching that might be completely off base, but we've got no maturity, so we're just like, oh, I'll follow this over here, I'll follow this over here. This sounds nice, that, that sounds rightish. let's go with that. He says, listen, let's speak the truth in love. Let's get into the word and grow up, grow up to become more like Jesus. If your practice has been trusting your heart, it's time to grow up and start trusting the word of God. Your heart is going to lead you to some devastating places. When we get to heaven, you can ask Eve how following your heart works out. Only in the collapse of human civilization, right? That's all. But God's word will lead you to life. Your heart will lie to you. I've been talking with friends just about this a lot recently. I hope that we've all reached the place of maturity where we've realized that we can't even always perceive reality accurately outside of the Word of God. We should not trust our gut. We should not trust our heart. I find more and more, when I look at a situation, most of the time I'm not perceiving the situation accurately. I only get close when I stop and I say, Lord, help me to understand what's really going on here. He's the only one who knows. And as you become more and more aware of how little you actually know and how God knows everything, it causes you to say, I should not be trusting my gut. <laughs> I should not be following my heart. Make a note of this. 
verifying all teaching against God's word protects the believer from falling into foolishness. Verifying all teaching against God's word protects the believer from falling into foolishness. Can't tell you the number of believers I saw going to hear Oprah talk about spirituality when she came to Vancouver a couple of weeks ago. Blew my mind. She's a completely new age adherent person. And here's believers going with a pen and paper ready. What are you going to teach me? Nothing. He's not going to teach you anything. She has nothing that is going to grow you in your relationship with God and that is actually going to help you. And yet there are believers and I'm thinking, what are you doing? Foolish Galatians. Foolish Galatians. Part of receiving the gospel is dying to the law. I hope I can articulate this well because it's a massive concept that just hit me this week. Part of receiving the gospel is dying to the law. Believing the gospel means abandoning, letting go of the whole idea of trying to be good enough for God or trying to earn his favor. When we say, Jesus, I receive you as my savior, in that same motion, we are abandoning this whole idea of trying to be good enough for God as we accept Jesus being our substitute, the one who makes us good. Coming to Jesus means laying down all of our inadequate efforts and all of our striving and all of our work. It means laying all those down at the foot of the cross, looking up at Jesus and saying along with him, it is finished. It is finished. The striving, it is finished. The trying to earn God's favor, it is finished. The trying to earn the approval of people so that I'll have some sense of meaning in my life, it, it is finished. It is finished. Jesus has done it all. And part of the purpose of communion, which we're going to have the chance to take in just a moment, is to rejoice and remind ourselves of the finished work of Christ. And so maybe today, maybe today you just need to repent of forgetting that the work is finished. Forgetting that the work is finished. Maybe today you need to repent of thinking that God's love for you is going up and down based on your performance. It's not. He just loves you. He just loves you. And maybe today, as I often do, you need to preach the gospel to yourself. That it's all about what Jesus has done. It's not about anything that you can do. And that doesn't change. No matter how long you've been walking with the Lord, no matter how much you grow in the Lord, it's all by faith. It's all the grace of God. And then lastly, let me just encourage us again to surrender to God's work in our lives. I hope you don't have a checklist of all the things that you need to grow in and all the ways you need to change. God's got that covered. He's got that covered. Don't try and direct God's work in your life. Don't try and take control over God's work in your life. We should really work on this, Lord. 
Heavenly Father knows what you have need of before you even ask. If your spiritual life has been stagnant, ask him to remind you of the faith step that he's asking you to take. But let me be serious about this. Do not ask him unless you've already determined that you're going to say yes. Don't ask him because he probably won't tell you. He's not going to tell you if you're not actually willing to say yes. So determine in your heart, if that's you, say, Lord, I'm, I'm up for it. Whatever you want to ask me, I believe that you're a good father and everything that you do in my life is for my good. So whatever you're going to ask of me, it's for my good. I believe that. And so, yes, Lord, whatever it is, yes. And the Lord will show you. The Lord will reveal it. If we could be, if we could be anything, my prayer above all others, is that we would simply be a people who say yes to God over and over and over again. That's it. It's that simple. I just want to be a person who says yes to God over and over and over again. Every, everything else will get worked out if we can just say yes to God. Whatever the cost and no matter how high the stakes, let's be a people who accumulate stories of God's work in our lives. I don't want to watch the years tick by in my life. I don't want to watch the number of years go up without watching the number of God stories go up as well. And the way you get those stories is simply by saying yes to God. Keep saying yes, and you will not believe the number of stories that you will accumulate over a lifetime. Let's be people who have our own stories to tell, our own testimonies to share, because we said yes to God. Let's pray. Would you bow your head and close your eyes. Father, thank you for your word. And Lord, as we just dig into this precious letter that our brother Paul wrote to the Galatian believers, Lord, we are, we are so blessed by the reality that it is all you. It's Jesus. It's grace at the beginning, in the here and now, and carrying us through the future. It's all you. And all you ask of us is to believe, as Abraham did, simply that you are who you say you are. You are our heavenly Father who is good and who loves us, who knows what we need and is only ever doing good in our lives. You're not asking us to do anything more than say, yes, I believe that. And as you ask us day by day, do you trust me to answer over and over again, yes, I trust you, Father. I know you, Father. That's why I trust you. So I pray for, for any among us who might be wrestling or having a hard time with this idea that you are actually a good, loving, heavenly Father. Lord, in the name of Jesus, would you just reveal to them your love for them like they've never experienced before in the way that removes all doubt, in a way that seals it for the rest of their lives. That you just love them and there's nothing else that comes after that in that sentence. You just love us, God, because you've made us 
yours. And Lord, if we say no for the rest of our lives on everything, you will still love us. You will still save us. Even if we're faithless, you'll remain faithful. But Lord, we want to experience the joy of seeing you at work in our lives. We want to know the thrill of seeing you work miracles. We want to have stories to tell our friends and our family about how we have seen God move with our own eyes, in our own lives. We don't want the best stories, the best miracles to be the ones that we read about, that someone else wrote about. We want our own stories because we want to know your power and your greatness in our own lives, God. Father, we ask that if there's anything that we've been saying no to you on, Father, would you change our hearts? And as you change our hearts and as you fill us with trust and faith in who you are, would you help us to say yes as you reveal how you're asking us to trust you? Would you help us to say yes even before we know what the question is? Would you help us to say, Lord, I don't even need to know what the question is because I already know who you are. So yes, yes, Lord, whatever it is. And may you find faith in us, God. Faith that blesses you and honors you. The kind of faith that you deserve. We love you, God. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says, The Gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the Word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.